one of the things that um, Sean told me, shared with me, um, when we were talking about um, what we were going to talk about with you on Sunday, uh, is his, how he feels, how they feel about kind of being between two homes. You know, they live most of their time in China, and then they come home on, in, in this case, a year of furlough. And uh, he was just sharing how, how, how torn you feel and how in many respects after being in China for so long and coming back here, you almost feel like a foreigner in your, your own home turf because the culture is so different. Um, even grocery stores are, are overwhelming simply because um, they don't have those kinds of things. So he said this culture shock and now, of course, they're kind of acclimated to Western California culture and now they're going to head back to China and their kids are going to experience a massive culture shock. Um, so there's this like um, kind of a divided home, home here in America and home over there in China. And um, one of the things that Sean said to me as it relates to home is um, he said that uh, home is where we are together in Christ. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty good answer for a missionary. Wherever you go, whether it's in China or here, it's wherever we are together in Christ. Um, especially applicable for missionaries or people who move from place to place to place, like some of our military families, is just to know home ultimately is where you are together with Christ. Great answer. Which uh, kind of leads into our final um, message on the topic of who am I. Um, talking about the whole concept of, of home. That is a, a powerful word, um, home. For some people who have had a, a negative upbringing, it can be a very negative powerful word. Maybe there were some dark things in your past that are connected with the idea of home. Most of us, I would suspect, is that the idea of home is filled with a lot of positive feelings and affections. Um, I know it is for me. Um, home is the place where my heart is. It's a place where you long to go back to when you're away. It's a place where you're accepted. Um, it's a place where you feel loved unconditionally. Uh, it is a place of origins, sometimes. It's a place of belonging, and it's a, it's a place of, I think, identity. <laughs> Reminds me of a John Denver song. Remember, country roads take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia, where I belong. There's, there's something to that. Now, if you listen to the list of things I just said, like it's a place your heart longs to be, or a place where you want to get back to, a place to belong, um, or a place where you're loved, you realize that I've used the word place a lot. And I believe that's important because you can't have home without a place. Now, certainly a place that is a, a, a location, um, a setting in which to dwell. That's what I mean by, by place. Um, home is more than simply a place. If, if I was to go back to my house and my, my, my family wouldn't be there, it would just be a shell of a home. But you can't have a family without a place. Um, and it's, it's important for memories and, and identity and belonging to have, like some central place. So even when we go camping, and my kids love camping, at the end of a week and a half or so, um, inevitably they say, I can't wait to go home, back to the place like just where they belong. And in addition to that, or should I say with that, there is, and I think everybody can say, yeah, I, I have that yearning. There, there is a desire to have a place of your own. Even if it's an apartment, just a place to, to have your bed and your furniture and decorate things the way you want. That is, that is something that is deeply ingrained within the human heart, is this desire for a place of our own, a desire for home, a desire for a location in which to dwell. 
And what I want to um, explore this morning is the fact that that is by design. That God has placed within us, it's part of our humanity to belong to a place, a location, a piece of earth, a piece of ground, um, the creation itself. It's part of who we are. We've explored so far four answers to the question, who am I? The first and most important answer was we are made for a relationship with God. Apart from a relationship with God, you can't really know who you are. Um, Second answer was we are also created in community. We are created as a people and that God has redeemed. And you can't really know who you are apart from who you are with And that is a people. And the third, last week, we talked about an important aspect of our humanity that God created. And that is we were created with with vocation. We're vocational beings that have purposes to carry out meaningful activities on planet Earth. The fourth one and the final one has to do with this idea of Earth. It's the place. It's the home. It's the location. It's the real estate um, that God has designed us for and for us. And I want to show you that in Scripture, just how important that is in terms of what Sean talked about, the big story of the Bible, in terms of creation and in terms of redemption in the end. And you're going to see that this idea of place or location is massively important to us. And I hope by the time you get to the end, we realize that there is there's a massive hope that comes with understanding um, how we were created for a particular place. So as with all other these uh, others of these messages, I want to take you back to the beginning again, back to creation. Only this time, I'm not going to deal with chapter 1. I'm going to deal with chapter 2 of Genesis. Chapter 2 of Genesis. One of the things you find in chapter 2 is that there are two focuses. Two primary focuses in chapter 2 of Genesis. One is the creation of man and woman. So, creation of man. And the second one is the formation of a place. Um, almost a third of chapter 2 is given to describing what God created, a garden, and its location. I mean, a third of the chapter is given to describing a place. Um, that third begins in verse 8. I'm not going to read the whole, whole um, section, just this first part. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east and there he put man whom he had formed. There, there, that's the place is, of course, the Garden of Eden. You know that. And out of the ground the Lord made to, uh, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then it goes on to describe the locations and the rivers that come out of, uh, of Eden and so forth. The Tigris, Euphrates, and so forth. And so you have this massive section that's given to describing our very first home. Piece of real estate. And God creates this home and furnishes it perfectly and lavishly. Um, those words at the very end there, of pleasant to the sight. In other words, just beautiful. Like God loves beauty. And he created it with this, all this astounding beauty. He didn't create our first home in monochrome or black and white. Like he created just a magnificent, beautiful, and then also um, fruitful for food. Like all kinds of different fruits and so forth. So God creates this, this opening piece of real estate, this location, this home for, for Adam and Eve that's perfect. And that home is massively important. He puts man in there. Interestingly enough, man or Adam is another word for earth, suggesting a pretty close connection between Adam and Adamah, earth. 
formed from earth, we were made for the earth. And then he, he uniquely equips us. So you think about this. If you don't believe in evolution, then, then this should just cause us to wonder about how great God is. That God gave us senses, the physical senses of sight and touch and sound and so forth, specifically tailor-made for this place. Right? He gave us physical taste buds. We are, according to the scriptures, we are spiritual, physical people. Spiritual, physical people. There are two parts to our nature. And he's given us the capacity in our senses to enjoy physically with our senses. Like he tailor-made our frame for earth so that when we bite into a physical peach or a tangerine or a, or a watermelon, like we, we, we experience the joy of what God created. Or taking our hands and touching the, the you know, the texture of a of oak tree or wife's face or a face of a child and to feel those things or to hear the meadow lark or to hear the mockingbird which keeps us up at our house um so it's like he created ears to to take in the symphony of sounds around us and with the eyes to see beauty and color and just you just realize that like he he made us like to soak in the grandeur of the place and to experience Experience firsthand the wonder of a massively created and beautiful and loving God. That's, he created us to be in that context, a physical context. And it started, of course, in the, in the Garden of Eden. Our first home, a perfect home that was hypothetically supposed to cover the earth as humankind multiplied. Of course, the story goes on that our home was indeed Corrupted. We've noted in the past three messages that it, the, the rebellion um, of Adam and Eve from their creator, the one who gave them a perfect home, per perfect environment where he was there and they were together, um, that as a result of their, their rebellion and their turning away and, and wanting something more than him, um, everything broke, including our home. Our home, uh, the place, the location, the real estate plants, the birds, the animals, everything went, uh, underwent a fundamental physical change as a result of that first act. Some people ask, why did, why did everything have to be corrupted as a result of one man and woman's choice? And the answer to that, I, I think in part, is the fact that Adam was created as, as the earth's first king and Eve was the first queen. And as in every other nation or country, when the king fails, the kingdom falls. So his position as king, he fell, and all creation fell when the king fell. And so we read in verse 17 of the cataclysmic chapter of Genesis 3 that, that God cursed the ground. Now the ground, the earth, the Adama, the Adam is cursed. The Apostle Paul would say some 1,500 years later, at least in terms of the writing of the book of Genesis, he recognized that it wasn't just the ground that was cursed, but all of creation, all of the universe is cursed as a result. He would say, verse 21 of Romans 8, that the creation, everything we know and see and everything we know and can't see, um, itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. In other words, currently it's in a state of bondage to corruption. It's corrupted. Everything is corrupted. Physically. And of course, there's a 
little hope in there in verse 21. It's talk about that, that, that it will at some point be set free. That explains a whole lot of things. That explains why, why, why the world is the way it is. It explains why what happened in Nepal happened in Nepal. That is, the earth is out of sorts. It is discombobulated. It is in conflict. Nature itself is, is, uh, is, is in chaos, which explains why we have earthquakes and why we have tsunamis and why we have violent storms and tornadoes and um, hurricanes. It explains why we have toxic molds and diseases and famines and droughts. That wasn't the way it was in the beginning. It, the universe was altered as a result of the fall of man. Um, and we know that. We, we, we live in a world where there's catastrophe every day. <laughs> maybe I've said this before, maybe I haven't. But almost every time I drive over the Bay Bridge, I'm praying. Lord Jesus, please don't let this be the day when the big one hits San Francisco because I'm on the bridge. And I remember back in 89 when I saw part of the Bay Bridge fall, remember? And I was just, I don't want that to happen to me. Well, we pray those prayers because we live in a broken world. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Our home was broken. Now, just as a, uh, this isn't trivial, but as a side note, one of the things that I, I like reading is, is ancient records or literature. Um, that coincides with the Bible. Because some might say, well, this is just the Bible's version of things. And, you know, they've uncovered other things um, in the Middle East that have corroborated, you know, the Bible. If you've never read the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's, it's basically a kind of a mythical record of eight souls being saved in the middle of a flood on a boat. Or um, one of the things that was dug up over there, uh, there's a, a, a scholar by the name of Samuel Kramer who is a Sumerian expert. You know, summer is, uh, they consider it to be like the cradle of civilization over there in the Middle East. And he found texts which describe um, a place of perfection. It's just, here's just a, a brief quote. Whenever I find things like this, I find it intriguing. It's just like, not that the Bible needs any help. It doesn't need any help. It stands on its own. But Dillman, a place, is a land that is, and here's, he's quoting ancient literature from thousands of years ago, pure, clean, and bright. Uh, here's another quote. A land of the living which knows neither sickness nor death. So the, the other other um, literature describing what we're talking about in Genesis, it broke. Our home broke. That's why we feel discombobulated and somewhat out of sorts, because our home is not what it was made in the beginning to be. And that's why we don't always feel, we don't feel really truly at home here, and yet we do. We feel like we're supposed to be here, but the same token, we don't. Well, as I've told you in the last three messages, and I've tried to point out, and I, I, hope, I hope it's communicated, what God began in the beginning, he didn't discard. Um, everything that begins in Genesis and falls apart in Genesis, God intends and promises to reclaim. And it's interesting that one of those things he promises to reclaim is land. He comes to Abraham and he promises him, what? A place. I am going to take you to a land. 
And that same promise of land is given to Isaac and to Jacob and their sons and daughters. Moses leads the same people of Abraham out of Egypt and into what? The promised land. Onto a piece of real estate that is flowing like milk and honey. Of course, that land could not be kept because the people were still sinful and the ground still cursed. In order for there to be a, a writing or a, um, a reclaiming of the real estate for mankind, there has to be atonement, both for man and all creation. And that, of course, brings us to Jesus, who, interestingly enough, was also interested in land when he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? He didn't say they shall inherit a cloud or some mysterious castle up in the sky. He says, they shall inherit the earth. And that's precisely what he came to do. He came to die and give his life to remove the curse, not just from us as individual people, but also from creation. That's what he came to do, die to atone and cleanse for him a creation. That's part of the message that God gives to Peter when he says, don't any longer call what I have purified unclean, because now it's been cleansed by the blood of my son. And then his resurrection sparks off what the New Testament calls a brand new creation, beginning in the hearts of people as they hear the gospel, but it will work its way outward into the renovation of all things. That, that's just part of the massive scope of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We tend to really narrow it down and think it's just about saving my soul. And indeed, it is about saving our souls, but it's vast. It's vast. It's that, that the same Paul that wrote about the creation that had fallen under a curse is the same Paul that wrote this in, in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, when he says, for in, and here he's referring to Christ because it says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's God coming to us in the person of Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself, to bring back together to himself, not some things, there's just some people, but he says, all things are just like sweeping across the universe. All things, whether on earth, here, this piece of real estate, or in heaven, making peace, that is bringing in the shalom that used to be um, in Genesis 1 and 2 by the blood of his cross. So bringing peace to heaven and earth and reclaiming it for himself by the blood of Jesus. That's amazing. This is like... Easter and Good Friday is a cosmological, universal, universe-altering event. One writer put it this way, and I, I, I like his wording, because he talks about um, a shockwave when it comes to the resurrection. This is that magnificent uh, impact that the resurrection the resurrection makes it possible for the believer to be a new creation most of us would say yes i'm a new creature in christ but the resurrection of christ also inaugurates something much broader the recreation of the universe because it all broke it all was subject to decay and corruption at least this is the conclusion of a number of theologians i wholeheartedly agree as one author put it with the resurrection itself a shockwave has gone through the entire cosmos. The new creation has been born. Of course, we await the return of Christ for the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, but the resurrection marks the beginning, the dawn of the new creation. In other words, it's already begun. 
By the time you get to the end of the Bible, we find that God has has restored, reclaimed, redeemed a place for us, a home. Like the original, only amplified better and eternal. So you get to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, and you read this. Now, before you read it, don't read it behind me. I want you to just notice a couple things. One is that all four of these messages are found here. God is present amongst his people. That's message two. God dwelling with his people, number two. Each of those people are exercising their vocations as those who are ruling and reigning on earth. And the fourth one, in a place. And notice that the verbiage is cast in terms of Genesis 2. Rivers and trees and fruit and time. There's months that go by. There will be time in the new creation. It's not a timeless existence. We're physical creatures. That implies time. So this is what he writes. And chapter 22 follows chapter 21, which uh, identifies the place as the new heavens and the new earth. The new earth, the ground, the real estate that God is reclaiming and restoring and bringing back to life by way of kind of resurrection, just like Jesus. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It's Genesis 2. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Here's God now dwelling amongst his people. And the Lamb, that's Christ, through the middle of the street of the city. A city is something new. A place of civilization. A place of gathering. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Genesis 2, brought into the new creation. Tree of life. And granted, much of this is symbolic, but it's painting a picture of Eden restored. Yielding its fruit. Each month, so there's fruitfulness and beauty. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any, anything accursed. Curse is gone. It's lifted. It's, it's, it's been done away with because of Christ. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants, there are the people, um, will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's a sign of ownership and love. And night will be no more. They will, they will know... Uh, They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. There's there's our vocation forever and ever. That's that's home. It's a recreation of real estate, of, of ground, and God bringing back in all of its fullness and all of its beauty a place in which we will dwell and soak in the magnificent beauty of everything God created with him with us. That, that's, that's, that's where we're headed. And, and, and it, inter- interestingly enough, it says that we will see his face, the face of God. Do you know that in the, the pictures in the Bible of the angelic beings, they almost always, if not always, have their faces covered In other words, even the perfect beings of angels don't even look at the face of God. But here, humans created in the image of God, restored and resurrected, are given the single pleasure of seeing the face of God. That, to me, is awesome. We were meant for home. Ours is broken. But God is in the process of restoring and will restore it fully. We were meant for a place which is why we feel a longing to have a place. But our place, ultimately, 
backwards forward, not here. Now, let me draw a couple of implications and then we'll take the supper together. What does this do for us? So how, how does this teaching from beginning to end, um, how should it apply? So what, Dan? One thing it does is I think that it allows us to understand, oh, excuse me, I have a graphic here. This is to kind of sum up the, uh, the series. You know, who am I? What was I made for? Well, you were made for God. You were made for community, that is family. You were made for vocation, and you were made for the earth. Implication number one is this, if it comes up. This view of God creating and redeeming earth means that we should and can enjoy creation. That is, enjoy our home without making it a god. I, I wrestled with how exactly to state this. Because in one sense, I wanted to say, don't make this place your home. Which would be a true statement. Like, this place is our home, but not yet. But the positive side of it is, it, it still in some sense is our home. This, this is the earth. This is what God has claimed. I mean, Jesus has already, already um, paid the price. He's already um, lifted, if you will, the curse. He already has authority over all things. He's already been granted that. In other words, the territory we live on is his. So it's his, and he's in the process of putting all things under his feet and will one, do, one day do so with finality. You know, there was in the first, first generation, second generation of, of the church, there was this group of people called the Gnostics. And if you don't know what that word means, it means basically there, was, there were people that believed that matter, physical matter, was, was, was basically evil and the spirit was good. And therefore, what you wanted to do was somehow escape matter as evil. And then the, the Jewish people came along and the Christians saying, no, that's not true. God created matter. Physical existence is a blessed thing. It's a good thing. Therefore, we as his people living in a physical home can enjoy physical things. He made nectarines and he made peaches to taste good. That means enjoy it as a gift of God. But don't make it a God. Two. Redeem your space for the glory of God. And by this I mean, again, Christ already has authority. This planet is already his. It's, it's his by way of divine right. He owns your property. He owns mine property. It's not been renovated yet, but he already owns it. And one of the things that this idea of, of the future um, gives to us, I think, perhaps, because Christ is already exercising authority over this domain, over this real estate, is to redeem the space that he's given to you, the place that you dwell, the place that you live. Um, because where you live, new creation activities happening, new creation ministries happening. Um, there should be a sense, a taste of the shalom of God in your house. And I, I loved what uh, Nicole said when she said that the lady came into her home and lived with him. She had heard the gospel, but then she saw the gospel. Like, that's what we're supposed to do with our space. Space matters. It provides a venue in which we can see and taste and communicate the gospel in very, very tangible ways. That was a challenge offered to me by um, N.T. Wright, uh, just a uh, 
deep scholar who talks about the theology of space in the Bible, and he talks about using it as a way of claiming part of God-given space for his glory against the day when the whole world will thrill to his praise. Like put a, just think of this as this this image, but think of planting a flag in your home and saying, this, this is new creation property. Now, you may not have it forever because we're not there, but, I mean, conceptually, it's a place where kingdom ministry happens. There should be the shalom of God experience there and God's saving benefits there. And you invite people into your home. That's what they should taste in that space. They should taste the love of Christ. They should taste the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ in your space, in your home. Imagine just using your home to the glory of God. This is our new creation space. And the final implication is just really the main one. And that is set your hope on the home to come. In many respects, where we're headed is reminiscent of where we are already here. If you love the things you experience in this planet in a good way, and there are a lot of bad things, if you enjoy fruit trees and beauty and birds and symphonies and sunsets and oceans and rivers and hiking up a mountain and you you experience glory in this shadow world and enjoy it. Imagine what happens when God liberates it and the trees of the forest sing for joy and everything comes to life in a way that you can't even imagine. And then we, with heightened senses, because our bodies are broken too, experience the saturation of the glory of God in the place that he restores. A place where you can sing, a place where you can run, a place where you can dance, a place where you can sing, a place where you can eat, a place where you can cook, a place where you can visit. That's, that's our hope, brothers and sisters. And that puts flesh to me on the concept of heaven, because that's where we're headed. The new home, the new creation, earth renewed. And a good way to cap this off is to take communion together. You know, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he took the cup. And one of the things that he said about the cup is he says, you know, after this, I will not drink it with you again until we take it in my Father's kingdom. In other words, this cup is, is a symbol of something yet to come in which around a physical table with physical food and physical drink, he will raise a glass and say, see, I told you this would happen. And that's part of what we celebrate in communion. We look back to the cross where he gave his life, but we look forward to the consummation when he will give life to this broken home. Amen? If you are a follower of Christ, then after I pray, I encourage you to come up and just make this a time of reflecting on hope, on our new home that God is going to recreate for us, um, and, of course, the great sacrifice of Jesus that sent a shockwave through the whole universe. As I pray, um, if I could have those who are serving communion join me, and we'll take it together. Again, symbols of his body that was given for us and his blood that was just given for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this table, a reminder that it is of the great cost that was paid for our sake and for the sake of the universe, and also, Lord, for the hope that it gives us that someday we will drink this with you in person, face to face forever. We thank you 
and pray you would minister to us now through the bread and cup in Christ's name.